Welcome to the Lazy Pod Podcast. As advertised, we are back with David Matthew Feldman, writer, actor, puppeteer, and one very funny and witty guy who's joining us today here at the Lazy Pod. David, thank you so much for joining us. Mark, thank you so much. It's so great to see you after all these years. Yes, I now I'm as I it's it's been 18 years since the start of the show. Can you believe that? No, I can't. <laughs> and yet it still plays on YouTube and there are still fans out there who talk about the show and want it to come back in one form or another. Uh, let me just ask you to start this off. If, say, Turner UK decided to um, actually roll their sleeves up and do something with the IP that they purchased, uh, would you be interested in voicing the mayor if it was, a, say, an animated show? Uh, I would be interested in doing anything. I mean, I, I love the character um, and I loved... I mean, Lazy Town, as you well know, was a tremendously and uniquely challenging experience, unlike anything I'm sure you've ever done, unlike anything I've ever done. Sure. But I think about it every day. I mean, it was a huge part of my life. And um, I, I think I was, I was disappointed when it was all sort of um, stopped before we, we expected it to be. Um, so I, I think we have more to do. And I think we just kept getting better at it. So I would... Um, I would I would love to be a part of anything that they did. I was speaking with Jonathan Judge, one of our directors on the show, mm -hmm. and you know we were likening the experience to one of those World War II Army vets who spent time in a concentration camp. Uh, you know, when you're you're in the trenches, nobody was literally shooting at us, but <clears throat> there were certainly well, metaphorical shots coming our way. <laughs> Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you're like an army buddy, you know, like, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. I mean, um, you know, th there are only a handful of people on the planet who know what it was like to be under that roof and working on that show. And, and even if you've worked on other shows, it's not the same thing. It was just, it, the, like I said, the, the challenges were unique. And um just everything about it was just different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even being in Iceland itself, the uh, the character, mm -hmm. the, the Icelanders we worked with, people from all over the world who came to that sound stage to work together. Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting. Having read a previous interview with you, you said that you early on you had not considered puppeteering as a career until you were in class in college and you performed some work of Shakespeare with puppets and the audience reaction sort of got your brain buzzing, like, Oh, this is something. What, what was the play? Do you remember? It was, it was a class that was being taught. Um, you know, I went to this small liberal arts college and it was a class being taught by this very young kind of kooky uh, professor in the English department who decided to add puppets. She was into puppets and she decided to add puppetry to her Shakespeare class. And we had to write our own monologue. And my focus was on the writing. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was, I, I was most concerned about the writing. And then we had to perform it with a puppet. And I just grabbed this old Kermit puppet that I had, you know, since I was a kid. And I went in and I performed it. And the reaction, forget about the writing, the reaction to the, the performance really really took me by surprise because 
I was just doing stuff that I had done since I was a kid, playing mm-hmm. with puppets at home and talking to my little sister. You know, it was one of those things where it just, you, it never occurred to you that other people couldn't do it like this. Um, and so when I got that reaction, it really changed my thinking about, about maybe I could do this as a career because I always loved that stuff as a viewer, but I thought you had to be just some kind of superhuman to be a puppeteer. (laughs) And then I realized that maybe I could, I could do it. So that's it, it. Things very much, my thinking changed at that point. I was always, <clears throat> I was telling my my boys coming up that if they were ever interested in showbiz as a career, there are, of course, a million jobs you can have, depending on your skill set and your interest level. Um, but there's no direct path. For example, if you go to medical school, you pretty much know you're going to put your internship in and you're going to work those crazy hours, then you get assigned to a hospital or whatnot. <clears throat> Same with lawyer and many other careers. Showbiz it's a dotted line that branches out like, like uh, tree roots. You just, there's no way to predict it. And how does a puppeteer get jobs? Is there a puppeteer agent who specializes? Is there? There are, but you know, it's, it's exactly like you said, there's no instruction manual. You know, there's no, like you say, being a doctor, my sister's a doctor. I've watched her, you know, through medical school and, through her career, it's it's hard work, but the steps are there. You know, um, you have in show business, you have to build your own staircase, um, and it's that's the hard part. I mean, forget about having the talent and the luck. Luck is a huge part of this, um, but just figuring out. And you could talk to as many people as you want. You know, I've talked to people. I've tried to advise people. People have tried to av- advise me. But everybody has their own story is the problem. Yeah. So, um, but what I think with puppeteers, I, I know very few puppeteers who actually, at the very beginning, wanted to be a puppeteer. They, they always come to it from some other discipline. Mm. You know what I mean, most puppeteers are something else. They're um, also puppet builders, or they're also actors, or they're also singers. In my case, they're also writers. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think even I, I saw Jim Henson once in an interview saying, I don't think you would decide to become a puppeteer at any point. It's just, it's something that happens as a result of, of these other things. Mm-hmm. And maybe now, maybe because the Muppets have been around for so long and there are so many people who grew up on them that there are people who grow, who, who as kids say, I'm going to be a puppeteer. But mm-hmm. I think that's a kind of a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, you know, I was, I was, I wanted a right. Um, and I, and I wanted a puppeteer. And so bit by bit, things started to kind of present themselves to me. Um, you know, there were various shows being produced in New York mm-hmm. when I was starting out. And, and, and that's how I kind of got into television puppetry. But first I worked for a puppet theater doing, um, doing, you know, theatrical shows. Is that the puppet company? Yes. Is, yeah. Are they still around? Well, actually, Stephen Witterman, who ran the puppet company, who was the puppet company, moved from New York to Chicago a couple of years ago. So he's doing stuff there, but I haven't worked um, with him for a while. 
It, it's, you know, puppeteering, it's one of those art forms that it's very rare in a movie to get a moment that is transcendent, that feels almost magical. And in television, it's almost impossible. Mm. Uh, but with puppeteering, it's almost like stock of the trade. It's almost like, you know, uh, there are many moments like that. And it's almost because, well, why do you think that is? Uh, it's that that suspension of disbelief. So you're already sort of hooked into the magic of it all. Yeah. And I think, you know, puppetry is about distilling the essence of anything. Right. So, so, you know, you're going to get those magical moments, you know, it, there's not a lot of extraneous stuff. It's, it's all about the most sincere moments or the most, comedic moment the silliest moment it's 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 all these superlatives that you get and that you have to play and certainly when we play these comic characters they're so exaggerated that that you can play you know you can play it to the you can play these magical moments there's nothing mundane about it at all right, right. i had the pleasure of spending time on the henson lot in hollywood mm -hmm. which is you know it's the old charlie chaplin right studio yeah. and it was really cool to see how it like the whole staff and the company in general, they're just, they're standing on the shoulders of Jim Henson, you know, yes. and, and they pay full honor to him. And he's really taken his place in the pantheon, you know, with people like Walt Disney. Sure. Um, and uh, have you been on that lot? No, I've uh, never been. Of course they don't just do things there with puppets and so forth. They right production but um it was interesting how he pushed puppeteering as an art form starting i guess back in the 60s or maybe it was even the 50s yeah anybody was nobody was doing that prior to that time it was punch and judy uh and sort of local children's television shows with black and white kinescope puppets just sort of talking with people who were not puppeteers they were just some guy from who did the weather you know and they well, you had, you know, Bert Hillstrom doing Kukla, Fran and Ollie, which, um, you know, who in Bert Hillstrom was a, a puppeteer. Um, right. You know, Jim Henson certainly took it to another level. But, um, yeah, I mean, most people I know, most puppeteers I know are doing what they're doing because of Jim Henson. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, he really demonstrated that they were a viable art form for television. Um, resting on what Bert Tilstrom had done. I remember right. those shows. Um, Sherry Lewis had Lamb Chop right. and a few others, but but the emphasis was still placed on the humans in a way. And I think what Jim Henson did, at least for me, was like, you know, I like watching shows that take me someplace. And I totally bought, you know, you, you're sort of semi-aware in the back of your brain, oh, these are puppets but I was I was totally sold on the way they presented because the characters were so alive and so engaging well also because they weren't in a puppet stage anymore you know that was one of the key things that he did Bert Tillstrom's puppets were in a puppet stage that you can see as if you were just sitting there as a kid you know you know sitting on the floor watching a puppet show but he got Jim Jim Henson got rid of that puppet stage and turn the television screen into a puppet stage. So all of a sudden they were living in the same world as, as all the other, as the people who were walking by and coming into, you know, they were there, like you said, you want to believe in it. So, um, 
that was a key step in, in believing in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, I remember seeing uh, Miss Piggy and Kermit riding a bicycle in one of their features. Mm-hmm. That was a big deal. That was a big moment. It was like, oh, wow. I, they never did that on television, I don't think. No. And then, of course, your brain goes, if you're in the, if you're in the entertainment industry, like, how did they do that? Um, right. uh, but it was a really cool thing. It sort of brought them into the, uh, and of course, you see Kermit and Piggy and these characters all over the place and the Sesame Street um, puppets. Have you ever worked on uh, Sesame Street? I know you have PBS connections. We'll talk about that in a minute, but have you had anything? Um, I've never worked on Sesame Street. No, actually. Was that something you ever wanted to do? You know, I, I think what I started to really want to just do my own stuff. Um, so I, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to be Jim Henson in the sense that I wanted to do what he did, which was he created his own stuff and created, played his own characters and all that sort of thing. That's what I figured, you know, we're doing on this planet here is to, to make our own mark. So do you, do you still maintain your craft? Is it, is it like riding a bicycle? You just remember how to uh, manipulate the puppets or is it like a period of adjustment since we're talking about a physical activity that it's not exactly a common one? Um, I look practice. I mean, practice is practicing is better than not practicing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to a certain extent, you know, there are, I don't know, your brain just kind of goes there. When I look into a monitor, you know, with a puppet and I'm, I'm performing that puppet. I just, I, my brain goes to a, a place, um, a wonderful place. And, uh, you know, if I have a job coming up, um, and I haven't, and I haven't performed in a while, I'll, I'll, you know, take out my camera and hook it up and, and, and just, just to make sure that I sort of, it's mm-hmm. not even a practice. It's about sort of confidence, just getting my bearings again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must be entertaining for your children to have grown up this way. Uh, no. Unless they were like mine, who the minute that they grew up beyond watching Rugrats, they, they wished I would write something cooler. Uh, my kids, I mean, it's sort of a cosmic joke. You couldn't give a, and you can believe <laughs> the next word. Um, my kids are interesting. They, like I said, you know, you want to be your own person and they're their own people. I mean, they, mm-hmm. I never got them into this stuff. Um, I tried, but it never worked. <laughs> Not really. Um, they have their own interests, their own their own thing. Um, so, I mean, you know, we never watched Lazy Town together. But that was part partly me because I don't like to watch myself because I just drive myself crazy. So, um, you know, it's but they're it's not their thing. They're not into that kind of stuff kids don't watch i was kids don't watch tv anymore they watch tiktoks and youtube i mean it's amazing to me that there are still television networks quite frankly (laughs) i think they're hanging on like the airlines are real um you were quoted uh i think this is a real quote i it says uh, i think when you're writing for kids you're basically just trying to entertain yourself as a child and how successful you are depends partly on whether or not you had good taste as a kid. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, Damn, but- that really rang true for me. I think, uh, you know, if you were an observant child or if you were able to reference outside uh, things and the things that you were watching, if you kind of understood context and 
those sorts of things. Um, I think that's true. And, and you at your heart are a writer. Yes. And that's what you started out as. And you had some success with a, a show on PBS called Oh Noah, which wasn't it um, uh, originally called Noah Comprende? Yes. Uh, yes. Congratulations on two Emmy nominations. That's pretty incredible. Thank you very much. Thank now, you. That show popped a whole lot of your head and you pitched it and it was on the air. How did that come about? That show um, I worked on with my writing partner, Louise Gicko. Um, and you talk about Jim Henson. I mean, Louise is a longtime uh, Henson writer and she's done a number of different television programs over the years. Um, that, uh, it's a long time ago, we did it with WNET, which is a PBS station in New York. And they were looking for, you know, every now and then, as you know, um, networks will send you sort of a, a, a list of sort of curricular areas that they're looking to, to satisfy. Um, and on that list was foreign languages. So Louise and I developed a show about this boy who lives an English speaking boy who lives with his grandmother and his Spanish speaking grandmother in a Spanish speaking community. And he's trying to figure out the language. And we developed this, this cute thing where she was always asking him to, to do things or get things for her and he would misinterpret it. And so that's where the comedy came from. Mm -hmm. um, do you speak Spanish? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> But I imagine you had to learn a, a few, uh, well, it was much probably like learning Icelandic when we were up there. No, the Icelandic was a whole other ballgame. Um, no, we, we, the idea with Noah actually was that it would not be limited to Spanish, that we would do it online and we'd be able to basically overlay multiple languages onto the show. Oh, so just, it wasn't just going to be a Spanish show, it was going to be a French show, a Chinese show. Um, that never happened. But um, yeah, I mean, we worked very closely with translators and advisors to make, we would write the scripts in English and then get them translated. Mm -hmm. um, it was really a visual show. It was, you know, a visual, it was about the, the visual gags and the physical comedy and all that. So, uh, and we wanted it that to be that way, by the way. We wanted it to be that, we kind of wrote it, even though there was dialogue, which we were teaching, we wrote it so that you can turn the sound off and still understand the show because it was, it was about immersion. It was about being in this language and figuring out what was being said by context, mm -hmm. uh, which is the way the most successful language schools teach. They don't hold you by the hand and say, you know, agua is water and, and this is this. They just start speaking Spanish mm -hmm. and, by the context and, and their emo the emotion in their voices and the way that they're speaking, you start to understand the language. So that was the sort of the, the curricular angle that we were going for with that show. Um, but I never learned Icelandic either. So. <laughs> well, I think it was more difficult because so many of the people we worked with there spoke English all the time. Right. And so there was no chance, literally, to immerse yourself unless you would just go to a grocery store or, and even there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was no imperative to learn the language. And it was so difficult. Um, I mean, it's not a romance language. You know, it's not, it's, um, it's just, it's just something else. And, and it, um, 
dissonance and sort of uh, not connected to a Latin-based kind of uh, structure and uh, things. Even if you translate it, it's like the subject and the prepositions are all backwards. And you always knew you were in trouble when they would start speaking Icelandic on the set. Um, because they were probably talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> I did become very uh, fluent in understanding Icelandic when Magnus spoke it because I was around him so much. Mm-hmm. And it's that old thing if you learn 25, 30 words in a particular language and you pick up the cadence and the rhythms of the speech and the mannerisms, which if you're with someone who's very physically dynamic, um, I never had a hard time understanding what he was saying. And I just assumed that that meant I could understand everybody, but my ear was tuned to him only in Icelandic. And I, you know, um, so if I listen to an interview with somebody now, it's just, just garbling. I can't understand a word of it. Well, I didn't understand uh, Magnus when he spoke English. So, (laughs) so there were some of those Magnusisms that we still carry with us. uh, Yes. It's ridiculous. Um, on the set, it always struck me. I mean, it, it was no surprise you had a avuncular relationship with the mayor, between the mayor and Stephanie, but you had that with Juliana off camera too, I felt like. Uh, and I remember you were sort of a key factor in the fact that as a young girl, she was made to feel you know welcome and comfortable. And I feel like your humor and your kindness to her were always... And, you know, you made her laugh. You made her feel like she was a kid who had somebody there who was like being silly with her. And I think. Yeah, I mean, that's nice of you to say. I, you know, those first couple of years, we all felt, I I think we all felt alone. I mean, it was just um, it was such a strange experience. And we were all so out of our element. And I remember thinking she must feel that more than anybody because not only is she you know in this strange land but she's the only kid um in in at work um so so yeah but we got along really well I I was very fond of her she was um just a really unique smart talented kid who um you know, who could have been a, a, she could have been a pain in the ass, but she wasn't. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those early days were sort of uh, a real adventure, a journey. And uh, I guess it was still, you know, because of the Icelandic and the where it is, and it was dark still in the mornings and through much of the day when we began in January. And it was yeah. just such an unusual thing. And to bring everybody together into this cold sound stage, everyone trying to, Stay it was, yeah, it was unlike anything I've, I've ever done, had done, will ever do. I mean, which is why I, I think about it all the time and remember it so vividly because it was so unique. Everything about it, the smells of Iceland, particularly that time of year in the winter, you smell the sulfur in the air mm-hmm. um, and being, you know, and it being dark all day long. I mean, it was just, it was just, a strange experience. And the fact that we started to feel at home there and started to enjoy ourselves is to me a miracle. I mean, it's just, and a wonderful miracle. It was so, I I made many trips back home because at the time I had small kids and Mm -hmm. needed to see my family. And 
coming back to America was always like, oh, this is a different place than Iceland. This is, even though it was a fully modern world with electricity and cars and things, I still felt like I was, because the buildings are sort of older, older fashioned and you get used to seeing that architecture and I sort of felt like we were in the past a little bit. Well, also you don't see anything green. You don't see trees. You know, I live in, in Westchester and, and it's nothing but trees yeah. around. I remember whenever I would come back, it would be like, whoa, you'd feel like you were in the jungle. <laughs> How long did you get to mess around with the mayor puppet before you actually stepped foot on the stage and someone said action? <laughs> we had um, about two or three weeks, I think, before we, between the time we first arrived in Iceland and, and we started shooting. Um, but the puppets were still being worked on. Um, we had to make some last minute adjustments as puppeteers, knowing what we needed on set. But we couldn't anticipate what we needed really because shooting that show is so unique and so strange. Um, most of my figuring out happened over, I think, the first like two months of the mm -hmm. show. Um, and then coming in for the second season, there was, there were, some 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 adjustments some major structural adjustments that we made to the puppet to make it better were there so actual were there actual were there actual episode rehearsals like we're going to walk through this i remember trying to institute a table reading of the scripts thinking that you know this will help alleviate some production issues but given the haphazard way of we ended up shooting the episodes anyway it didn't really help and look and so looking back do you think there were ways that that production could have gone smoother other than add 10 hours to each day? Well, this is only an hour podcast, right? <laughs> um, you know, um, how could it have gone smoother? Um, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, basically, Baseline Lazy Town is a very ambitious show, mm -hmm. right? You know, you know, it's not a show of two characters talking to each other. It's there's there's all this stuff going on. Um, you know, uh, so I think it is what it is. Yeah, it was was really. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and it was Magnus's, you know, I always said it was Magnus's toy to play with. Um, we were, you know. We were just visiting, really. So well, springing forth from that, you know, from his head, I, I realized early um, they brought me up to audition for the job. And yeah. meeting him, I realized, oh, this is he's he's got to be the one to to say everything. And I told him, I thought one writer or two writers was the way to go, because and that, and that even that would have been pretty difficult but instead they brought up 12 writers from hollywood and put them in a hotel <laughs> well i remember that i remember that very vividly um we had a like um this is before we started shooting i think we had like a table read um in that conference room upstairs where all the writers all these guys were sitting around the table um 
And then all the puppeteers were sitting against the wall with our puppets. So when it came time for like our lines, we would hold the puppet up and, and, and perform the puppet. But what I noticed was, this was really interesting to me. All those writers or most of them were animation writers from Nickelodeon, I think. And when we lifted the puppets up to perform, none of them turned around to look at the puppets. Mm -hmm. Their eyes were just on the page. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, well, what am I doing this for? I thought it was so you can see this puppet in action, right? So you can see how this puppet moves, what <laughs> makes it funny. Yeah. Um, but they were, I think because they were animation writers, they were just listening to it. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they figured the, the performance will come later, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was so important for us on that show to, to really make sure that the writing was in the wheelhouse of each character. Mm -hmm. Not just the character, you know, in, in, in sort of a metaphysical sense, but the character physically, because there were so many things those puppets could do, but there were so many things they couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is the magic of, of writing for puppets. It's figuring out the strengths and the, the weaknesses and the limitations. And if you, if you figure out that lane and you write within that, you're going to get something really nice. Well, yeah. And I mean, my main task, I felt like as the head writer was to give everybody a blueprint mm -hmm. because that's what had to come from Magnus's brain into my brain through my fingers. And here's, okay, here, there wasn't a lot of time in, in, to dive deeply into a scene. We were lucky if we could handle the demands of just the action sequences alone, Yeah, changing of the stories, getting notes from the network. And I was always glad that we could, had fully functioning creative adults with acting backgrounds who could take the scripts and make them sing on the set because, you know, there was really no time in, in a normal situation. You would take two weeks to really nail a script and give it nuance and interesting dialogue back. We, we were hanging on by our fingertips. And I mean, I remember I wrote a script called Miss Roberta overnight mm -hmm. on a Sunday night and we started shooting on Monday morning, you know, that. It was just a miracle we pulled it off. But the fact that you puppeteers were fully engaged, thinking, creative adults, you could give you guys a script and go, all right, do something with this. Well, I think at a certain point, we all became experts in our own characters, which is what you want, I think. Um, you know, I, I started to understand how the mayor would talk and things he would say and things he wouldn't say. Yeah. Um, but I have to tell you, the, the best, the best Lazy Town script I ever read was a script that you wrote that we never shot, <laughs> of course. Okay, yeah. There were many of those. Oh, um, you came down once. I don't remember why you showed it to us. I don't know if we were going to shoot it or it already been decided that we weren't going to. But you, I remember reading a script you wrote called Kitties, I think. <laughs> remember that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Where they all put on like a musical, you know, based on cats or something. Yeah. What I loved about that script was um, all, all the characters were in it and all the characters were being themselves. The action was driven by each character being him or herself. Right. Yeah. It was a very character driven script, which is what you want. 
Um, and it was a wonderful example of, of, of that sort of thing. And, um, of course we never, <laughs> we never did it. Yeah. Um, I do remember there was some pushback from New York about, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber may not take kindly to a parody or something. It's like, come on, that's ridiculous. But the, it wasn't like we were doing, you know, singing the songs. It was just called, we were just dressing up as cats. That was, if yeah. I recall, I don't remember, but. Um, you know, Lazy Town was a show about, about action. And, and so I feel like we were all sort of, you know, you know, that was the sun and we were all kind of orbiting mm -hmm. sort of that, um, the action scenes, the rescues and the saves and all that sort of thing. You were giving a rare honor, I think, when Stephen Carl spent an entire episode imitating the mayor that you created. It was, an, it was an imitation of the creativity that you had brought to the character. That must have been pretty cool. Well, that whole episode was an episode in my life because I don't know if you remember, but what happened was the show was that Robbie was going to disguise himself as Mayor Meanswell. Mm -hmm. which was a little even though he disguises himself in every episode it was a little bit of a departure in that he hadn't disguised himself as one of the characters on the show right. before you know he would show up as <clears throat> whatever miss roberta or the garbage man or someone we had never met before so magnus thought in order to make this believable to the other characters and, and also i think he thought it was a cool thing to do he wanted Robbie to actually disguise himself as the puppet. So he would, we would take one of the latex skins of, from the puppet's head. Mm -hmm. He would put it on as if he were putting on a mask. He would duck down below frame and he would pop up. And it would be me playing the mayor as, you know, the mayor, the puppet of the mayor, mm -hmm. as if Robbie were inside, you know, as if it were a costume. Yeah. If you remember this, this was his original. I, I do now. I'm vaguely remembering that there was an issue. <clears throat> and I had, I was of two minds about it. One was, okay, that's an interesting performance challenge for me to play the mayor as if Robbie were on the inside. But mostly I felt, I, I sort of had this red flag go up. Like, because... I had been working so hard from day one to make this a warm, approachable character. Mm -hmm. That was really what I was concerned about. And <clears throat> I thought that if he started to sort of skulk around an episode, mm -hmm. acting all weird and Robbie-like, that the kids at home, particularly the younger kids in the audience, wouldn't get it. Mm. That that was way too abstract a concept. Mm -hmm. That's the mayor, but it's not really the mayor. Mm -hmm. I just thought for a preschool show that was too abstract, or at least I didn't want to, I didn't want to tempt it at that time. Sure. And so, and I also thought it was a weird thing to do to the puppets because as puppeteers, we're working so hard to make you forget that these are puppets, mm -hmm. to make you forget that these are hollow shells, that somebody is on the inside, you know, operating that to do an episode that actually called attention to that, to say, this is a, this is, this is a facade. Yeah. This is 
this is artificial. I thought that was not doing any good for the puppeteers. So I said to Magnus, um, look, he dresses up in every episode. Forget about the puppet. Let's just make a Robbie costume and have him dress up like this. But as you well know, you can't go to Magnus and say, this isn't going to work. You can't do it. Because, you know, the, the athletic coach in him will just say, yes, you can. What are you talking about? You have to show him the alternative. So I spent the whole weekend with the help of the makeup people and the costume people putting together a costume for Robbie for this episode. Wow. And instead of asking Stefan to be a part of this experiment, I did it myself because I didn't want to make Stefan have to sit through it. So I actually got into this costume. Wow. And in fact, the day that I did that, there was a Russian news crew on the set and you can go on YouTube and see their news report and see me walk onto the set dressed as Mayor Meanswell. Oh my gosh. Off this costume. But anyway, Magnus agreed, this is the way to do it. And, and that's what Stefan did. And yes, to answer your question, it was a lot of fun and a great honor to watch him just mimic me through an episode. That's a great story. I know Stefan uh, had just lovely things to say about you working with you. He really enjoyed uh, even spending time off camera, particularly with you. And yeah, it, he always, it, it always made him feel like he was connecting with somebody who was really in the business and really understood what he was going through. Well, that was the, one of the wonderful things about Stefan, you know, and I've, I've, I think I've written about this before. When we first started, again, as you well know, there was a line drawn between the Icelanders and everyone else. I mean, they didn't really trust us. Um, you know, all these highfalutin people from New York and L.A. and London, you know, they, they were going to do things their way because that's kind of in their character. Um, and we were going to do things our way. And there was a real <clears throat> divide. And, but Stefan didn't divide things that way. He had his own dividing line. And that line was between the performers and everyone else. He was so happy to be in our group, to be part of us, because he really identified himself as an actor. And, you know, I don't consider myself an actor. I consider myself a performer or a puppeteer. Um, but he, you know, it, it always used to sort of amaze me and, and warm my heart when he would just come into the green room and start, you know, flop down in the chair and start complaining about, you know, things that were going on. He was the only Icelander who did that who allied himself with us because he didn't see it as a national thing. He saw it as, a, you know, about the craft, about he was an actor and we were performers and he was going to commiserate with us. Um, and, and we didn't, you know, we, we were not, you know, we really couldn't commiserate with him because he was doing something very different from what we were doing. He had a very different role on the show. Yeah. Um, he didn't have to deal with the puppets. We didn't have to deal with the makeup. It was, you know, there were very different things going on, but because we could connect on that level, um, he, he really connected with us and we connected with him and he was just the loveliest guy, really. I remember the first day I met him, I actually have a photo of the two of us together on the very first day we, we ever met. Mm -hmm. And I 
remember going home and calling my wife and saying, I met this actor who want, he wants to be famous more than anybody I've ever met. But it's not because of, well, it's maybe a little ego in there, but it was because he loved acting. And he knew that if this show elevated him to prominence, he would be able to do many more roles and it wouldn't be so difficult to sort of eke out a living as an actor. And, you know, he really, he really took command of that role and it was difficult and the makeup and the hours. And, but he, he was a real humanizing factor, I think, for all of us. It really made a difference. He was like, you know, if Magnus was the principal, he was the cool kid in school. You know, he could show up five minutes late. You know, not that he didn't, but, you know, put his feet up on the desk, smoking a cigarette or something. And everybody stopped and turned and looked at him and, and hung on every word that he said. He was um, because he knew it. He, you know, I mean, Magnus created the show, but Stefan we knew we wouldn't, I don't think we would have gotten four years without him at the center of that. Impossible. Yeah. I know when we would struggle to come up with uh, ideas, you know, he was always, what can we do to torture Robbie? And that was always a, an interesting way to begin any uh, brainstorm session. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was, uh, and it, you know, I miss him. It, anybody who saw him on lazy town or saw him play the Grinch live, uh, and it, you know it was incredible. They so I think he's got a legacy thanks to television. Um, and there are a lot of people who know him from Lazy Town and other things he did. But there's a lot of fans out there who just still love him, and it's such a tragedy. What a loss! Yeah, I mean he he, he and Lazy Town still have it's it lives on the internet. You know, um, I. You know, I know that like every day somebody's tweeting, oh, you know, my science teacher looks like Mayor Means well. Or um, <laughs> the big thing now is apparently the uh, the guy who just got elected prime minister of the Bahamas <laughs> bears a striking resemblance to me. <laughs> oh my and God. So, so people are calling him the mayor of Lazy Town. Um, and in fact, if you look him up and you look at his picture, it is uncanny, actually, <laughs> for so better. Uh, you were very prescient. You, you created somebody without realizing it that actually right. lived. Some of the kids that watch the show now were not alive back then. And that's always an interesting thing that happens where they sort of take it. Some, sometimes the older teens love the show, ironically. Um, mm -hmm. And there are certainly a lot of kids out there that make memes that are sort of <laughs> mean spirited. And, um, but there's a genuine affection every so often it kind of comes up again. It's in the, it's in the zeitgeist, you know, it's, it's there. People know what you're talking about when you, when you say it. So I'm sure that uh, people would want to know if you're working on anything interesting now, or anything that you could care to share. Are you still uh, in the biz? Do you still pursue creative activities yeah every day um you know i'm puppeteering um when stuff comes up various commercials and things uh unfortunately there you know um there wasn't much production for about a year or so tell me uh, um but one of the things that i was doing over the um lockdown for lack of a better word that I am absolutely really proud of is um, I've worked um, 
on and off for the past several years for a nonprofit that does a lot of uh, media in Africa, for Africa, for uh, mostly countries in Eastern Africa. Um, and they had asked me, they partnered with another organization that does um, dental outreach in schools. They'll go to schools in Tanzania and various places and teach kids about taking care of their teeth. Um, and they wanted a series of animations that they could use to augment these uh, programs. So I developed these characters and we produced with this wonderful animation company in South Africa, we produced these short animations. And I'm just so thrilled with the way they've come out. Um, and they're being used in Africa. And now they're on um, this brand new um, kids network in uh, Kenya called Akili. Um, so like every day. So millions and millions of kids are watching this stuff every day. Um, and I hope that we get to do more. And I hope that um, this is just the beginning for it because it's very gratifying. And it's something that you know, I got to do sort of on my own. And these people that I work with are not, you know, they're not the typical producers. They're not trying to, you know, tweak every little last thing. So it's it's been a wonderful experience. And this is Akili, A-K-I-L-I? Network called Akili, A-K-I-L-I. Okay. It's sort of like the Nickelodeon of Kenya. Wow. Uh, it, yeah. People... Uh, more and more people are, I remember the film strips from the 60s in school, they would show, you know, Columbus 1492 and all that. Mm. And, uh, but really solid entertainment for kids can be so instructive. And it's just a painless way to learn things. And I feel like uh, there could be a time in the future where everything a child learns comes to them in some sort of entertaining fashion, except the hard sciences, of course. But I'm doing a show now for PBS about the STEM subject matters. And uh -huh. it's great. It's, it's, you know, even if you teach a child a couple of things that may ignite them and say, you know, oh, I want to be an astronaut or a physicist or whatever, you know, that's something that our industry can give to those kids. And it's, uh, I know that there's a lot of educational television for kids, but really it doesn't get the credit it deserves. You know, of course, Sesame Street wins all the awards every year for teaching kids the ABCs, but mm. a lot of material out there that are teaching kids how to do stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all you know. It, it's always exciting to work from a curriculum because it um, it just opens you up creatively. You think you think it's going to be the opposite um, that oh, I have to I have to do what you're telling me to teach here, but you'll think of things you never would have thought of before based on the research and, and the, you know, the educational points that you have to hit. Yeah. I always say, you know, I, 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 I don't know if you ever got into this, but I always used to say that lazy town should have had a curriculum because we were teaching mm -hmm. something, mm -hmm. but the curriculum was really just in Magnus's head, right? <laughs> never really had one written down. Yeah. Well, David Matthew Feldman, this hour has just wow in a flash. And I really, uh, really am grateful to you for your time and your thoughts. And you've always been a, a very engaging and interesting guy. And uh, you helped make uh, Lazy Town uh, the incredible thing that it became. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you've all, you were always an island of sanity <laughs> in the North Sea. Um, yeah. So, so thank you very much. Um, no, I, anytime. I love talking about lazy times. Well, we'll see how this goes. If we have more opportunities, maybe we can have another chat or a group chat or something. Um, yeah. It might be fun. But in the meantime, thank you again for joining us here at LazyPod. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Pod podcast. In future episodes, we'll go behind the scenes with stories about how the scripts were brainstormed and written. We'll talk with the actors and crew members, and we'll have special episodes on the songs, the action sequences, the sets and props, and the studio itself. Make sure you go to bed by 8.08. And remember, there's always a way. The Lazy Pod Podcast.